listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. This is the third weekend of Advent. Advent is the season on the Christian calendar in which we are anticipating, we're waiting for the coming of our Lord. And and that's true in the sense of entering into the expectation of Christmas. We're anticipating Christmas Day when we commemorate Jesus' first arrival 2,000 years ago. But we're also, in that same sense, waiting and anticipating the arrival of our soon-coming King. And when he comes, he's going to make everything right. And so we're also in that season of waiting and anticipating uh, his second coming, just as we also enter into the story of his first coming. So Advent really does have kind of a dual focus, different facets to it. But we're talking about sharing in the Father's joy. And the question I want to open up with is this. And everybody's going to have to put on their thinking caps with me tonight, okay? I mean, really enter in, put in your thinking caps tonight. Most of my sermons, you don't have to think at all. Uh, but this one, you're going to you're gonna have to really engage with me. So stay tuned because I, I promise you, as you do the hard work of listening, I promise you the Holy Spirit's going to speak to your hearts something tonight. The question I just want us to open up with is why would God do this? You know, when it comes to entering into the earth, the second person of the Trinity, God's son coming to the world, why, what would motivate God to do this? I once heard a preacher trying to explain all of this by telling a story, and it was a true story as far as I know, true story involving two boys, adolescent boys, who lived with their mother and shared a home with a violent, raging, alcoholic father. And on those nights when the father would come home drunk, the older brother would get out of bed and intentionally provoke the father to beat him. And the father would, and then eventually he would just pass out. Later on, when the authorities rescued this family from this man, a social worker was talking with the boys separately, and, and the social worker asked the older brother, what, why would you do this? What would motivate you to intentionally provoke your dad to beat you? And the boy just simply explained, because it hurt more to see my mother and my younger brother beaten than it would be for me to absorb the blow. Now, obviously, it's a terrible situation, but it's a beautiful reflection on this young boy. There is a sense in which he is sort of a type of Christ. He's stepping into their place to absorb the blow in this beautiful, self-sacrificial, loving act. So it's a beautiful reflection on this boy, but, but it's a horrible reflection on the alcoholic father, right? And yet the preacher was trying to use this story, and he was basically saying, this is how the gospel works, and this is why Jesus had to come to the earth, which kind of leaves us with this impression that the father is sort of like this rageaholic, drunken with rage. Somebody's got to go to hell. Somebody's got to get beaten. Somebody's got to bleed, and so the son, you know, at the last minute steps in and says, no, father, don't do it to them. I'll absorb the blow, which again, makes you grateful for Jesus. But I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I, I, if this is how you understand the character of God the Father, 
If this, if this is how you imagine the Father's disposition towards us, I don't see how you can authentically, passionately love him. If this is what God is like, you may on the external do all of the right things, go all through the motions of worship, and, and out of the sincerity of your heart, do all you know to do to please the Father, but I can't see how you can truly authentically love God when you're terrified of him. And yet this is something that has plagued so many Christians, both today and throughout church history, like Martin Luther, for example, who I admire for a lot of reasons, I know I've picked on him a couple times since I've moved here, but I, I want you to know I do, I'm so grateful for what God did through Martin Luther and the other reformers, Calvin and Zwingli and all of the others. It was essential. And you know, all of our heroes are broken, wounded people. And Martin Luther was no exception, right? But when you read Martin Luther's writings, you know, he talks about how he'll, he'll say, man, I love Jesus, but the Father terrifies me. And it's almost like he saw God the Father and God the Son as having two different characters, two different dispositions towards us. And something should tell us that there's something off with that. When we read the Gospels, for example, in John, Jesus says that he comes to reveal the Father. We'll look at that scripture in a moment. He came to reveal the Father to us. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. In that verse that Doug read just a few minutes ago in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that the Son is the exact representation, not approximate, exact representation of the Father's very essence. Paul in Colossians says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. So I want you to see how the Trinity works. This is absolutely foundational. When we're talking about the Father, when we're talking about the Son, the Holy Spirit, yes, these are three distinct persons, but they share one essence, one nature, one character. And as soon as we start to believe that the Son and the Father have two different characters and two different dispositions towards us, what we're actually doing is tearing the Trinity apart. And that's actually a formal heresy. <laughs> I don't use the H-bomb very often, believe me. People throw that word around way too much. But that is actually a formal heresy, and it's dangerous to us. It's harmful to us to think that the Son and the Father feel two different ways towards us. No, 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 no. It, it's, it's, it's not what we see in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. They share the same essence. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. If we look at Jesus, we're looking at the Father. How do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. I thought I'd get a single amen there. Wake up, folks. I'm telling you. I'm going to come down here and preach, to, preach on the floor. Besides all of that, look at what John says in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. So listen, any picture of the Father that, in, that installs terror in us rather than love, we need to let go of that picture. Now, Pastor Ryan, the, the scriptures say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all, of all wisdom. Absolutely it does. But it's not talking about terror. It's talking about reverence, a holy reverence and respect and honor of the Father. 
but it's not talking about paralyzing fear. There is no fear in love. So let's take another look at this question. Why did Jesus come? And what I want, to see, what I want us to see this weekend is that Jesus came not to protect us from his raging father. Rather, he came to reveal to us an unfathomably beautiful father who is full of joy and wants to share that joy with us. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came not to save us from God. Jesus came to save us from anything that could block us from a relationship with God and thereby prevent us from experiencing the fullness of joy that the Father wants to share with us. Everybody with me so far? All right. Here's my next question I want us to think about. What is joy? What do we mean by the word joy? I think this is where many people, again, have misconceptions. And sometimes we assume that joy is a synonym with happiness. Or we might think that joy is just simply an intense form of happiness. But joy and happiness are fundamentally different. Happiness is a momentary emotion based on external circumstances. If things are going well in my life, I'm happy. If things are not going well in my life, I'm not happy. For example, if the New Orleans Saints are on a winning streak, Ryan Post is happy. But if the New Orleans Saints have lost five games in a row, Ryan Post is not happy. Happiness comes and goes. It's fleeting. Joy is much deeper than circumstances. It is much deeper than surface emotion. I can have a deep abiding joy within me even when things are not going well. In fact, I can have joy even when things are going terribly. If I'm angry, if I'm frustrated, if I'm disappointed, if I have profound grief, even in the midst of all of that, I can still have a deep abiding, undergirding joy because what joy is, is a deep settled confidence that no matter how I feel and no matter how, many thing, how things are, all shall be made well. That's what joy is. So no matter what's going on, I can always have joy. We see this with the Father. Father God is perfect joy. Joy is, is fundamental to who God is. And yet we see throughout the Bible that God experiences a full range of emotions. You and I, Scripture says, we are made in the image of God. But we are also emotional beings. Part of our image of Godness is the ability to experience emotions. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, is, was an emotion. We see in the Gospels over and over again, Jesus is moved by emotions. He weeps. He's moved by compassion. He experiences disappointment and profound grief. We see that in the Hebrew Scriptures. God the Father experiences all kinds of emotions, and yet even in the midst of all of that, God never loses his joy because joy is a, it's an enduring part of God's character. Amen. So let's look at our main text, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. 
To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. Now, a couple things I want to point out here. Notice the shepherds are in their fields, and all of a sudden an angel shows up. What is their first reaction? Terrified. Terrified. This is a pattern in the Bible. Every time a representative of God, an angel, a messenger shows up, people are terrified. And the angels always have to say, don't be afraid of us. We're not here to smite you. I believe there's something about our fallen human nature our alienation from God that causes us to instinctively fear God in, in a terrified way. We don't always act on that, but there's oftentimes in the Bible we see that where people experience God or, or an angel of the Lord and they want to run, they want to hide, they want to cover themselves, they want to get away, they're afraid. And I think part of the reason why, I'm convinced, part of the reason why is because we somehow or another we, we believe false, deceptive pictures of what God is like. Follow me now. We, we see this in the Garden of Eden. The serpent is able to get Eve to believe a false, distorted picture of who God is. The serpent says to Eve, did God really say that if you eat from that tree, you're going to die? You're not going to die. God is lying to you. If you eat from that tree, here's what's going to happen. You're going to become like God. And God doesn't want that because God's threatened by you. God doesn't want competition. So the serpent is able to deceive Eve into believing a picture of God that is untrustworthy, distorted, deceptive, insecure, kind of pathetic, and potentially vengeful. So that when Eve and Adam do rebel against God and God shows up in the garden, the first thing they want to do is run and hide. That's something that's instinctive about us. We buy into, to some degree, a distorted picture of God. So that when God shows up, we assume this has to be bad news. This can't be good news. So this is what happens. The angel shows up. The, 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 shepherd gets, the shepherds get freaked out. They get, they're terrified. And the angel has to say, I'm not here to bring you bad news about a rageaholic God. I'm here to bring you good news. In fact, it's a good news about great joy, and it's a great joy for the whole world. And notice as these angels sing this song, they begin to sing about how this baby is born Savior, and he's going to bring peace on earth among human beings. Here's the language, among whom he favors Jesus came not to protect us from a God who is furious with us. He came to reveal a God who delights in us. Now, he doesn't delight in everything we do, of course. No more than you as a parent, if you have children, delight in everything your child does. But God delights in us. And he's come to bring us a great joy. It says he's, he's Savior. Jesus, as we said last week, he's the savior of the world. And yet Jesus does not come to save us from his father. Folks, we don't need to be saved from the father. The father's the one doing the saving. I didn't get a loud enough amen. I'm not happy with that. 
The Father's the one that does the saving. And he saves us from everything that wants to steal, kill, and destroy the fullness of life and joy that God so wants to pour into our lives. You see how central joy is to everything Jesus is about, even before he's born, when Mary is carrying Jesus in the womb. Luke tells us that she, she goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, in Judea. And Elizabeth is also carrying a baby. She's a little bit further along. But Elizabeth is carrying a baby who you and I will come to know as John the Baptist. So you got Elizabeth with John the Baptist in her womb, Mary with Jesus in her womb. And, and what is John the Baptist's role? What's his assignment? What's his purpose? His purpose is to point people to Jesus, to pave the, the runway strip, to prepare the way. John's the one who will later say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what's really incredible to me is that John is already fulfilling his purpose before he's ever born. Look at what happens when Mary and Elizabeth encounter one another. In chapter 1 of Luke, verse 44, Elizabeth says, As soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. This is what John was created to do, to announce that the joy bringer has come into the world, the one who has come to bring us great news of a great joy. That's what Jesus is all about. Amen. And you see that as a theme throughout Jesus' ministry. And in one of his teachings, he, he teaches in John about um, the importance of abiding in him. If we remain in him and abide in him, we will bear much fruit. Look at what he says in John 15, verse 11. He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Look at that term, so that. The whole purpose of this teaching, and I believe all of Jesus' teaching, is so that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be complete. God wants us to be complete in joy. Two chapters later in John 17, just before Jesus is arrested, he's in the upper room and he's praying a prayer that, that John records. It's the entire chapter. And look at, what, look at one of the things Jesus says in this prayer. In John 17, verse 23, Jesus says this. He says to the Father, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now let's chew on that for a second. Notice he doesn't say so that they might have a slice. So they, they may experience a portion of my joy. He says so that they may experience the full measure of my joy. Now what are we talking about here? We're talking about the God who is perfect joy. God is the most joyful being in existence. You can't possibly have more joy than what God carries within himself. And, and, and the whole purpose, Jesus says, is so that we may experience the full measure of God's joy. We might experience God's joy in its completion. When you start to really reflect on this and meditate on it, you start to realize just how good this good news is. It's a trillion times better than the news that Jesus comes to save us from his rageaholic dad. That's more like relief news. That's more like we dodged a bullet news. This is the best news you can possibly imagine. 
the best news you can possibly conceive of. It's the greatest, most fantastic, mind-boggling, goosebump-inducing, infinitely brilliant good news we could possibly conceive in our minds. And Jesus came to bring us this good news, to reveal the Father who is behind this good news, and to save us from everything that could possibly block the good news. That's what the Christmas story is all about, and at the center of the whole thing is joy. The joy of the Father enjoying us. So I, I just want to make this very clear. Jesus did not come to simply clean up a mess. Jesus did not come simply because we were a problem that needed fixing. Yes, we are a problem that needs fixing. Amen? No denying that. And yes, we've created a lot of messes that ultimately only Jesus is going to be able to fully clean up one day. So all of that's true, but Jesus didn't come just because of, he didn't, become, he didn't come because he had to, he didn't come because he was obligated to. It was joy that motivated Jesus to come to this earth because everything God does flows out of joy, even the cross. Look at this passage in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it on the screen. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Um, the writer says this, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, because you and I, we're in a tough we're in a tough race, and it's going to require, life's going to require perseverance. But he says, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, watch this, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, there was, no, there was not one thing that was pleasant about experiencing the cross for Jesus, just like it would, would have been for you and I, it would have been, it was a nightmare to go through. But Jesus went through the experience of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Now, how does this work? Watch this. The more loving you are, the more mature you are in love, the more joy you find in pouring yourself out and sacrificing for the sake of others. The more I'm growing in the love, the, growing in love, the more I'm going to find joy in giving of myself for the sake of someone else. I can actually reach the point where I can become so perfected or so mature in love that there's nothing that gives me more joy than sacrificing for other people. Now, the opposite is also true. The less loving I am, the less joy I find in sacrificing for, for others. You know, the idea of sacrificing and giving of myself for the sake of other people, it feels like pain to me. Like, oh man, I, I wanted to hold on to this, but I, I felt obligated to give it. And, and so the less mature we are in love, the less joy we find in self-sacrificial acts. But the more mature we are in love, the more joy we find in sacrifice. Now watch this. God, we're told in scripture, is perfect love. Love is God's very essence. Love is not just something God does. Love is who God is. God's the one that makes love possible. God defines what love is. He's perfect love. Therefore, the cross is the supreme revelation of who God is because it's the supreme expression of self-giving, others-oriented, self-sacrificial love. So nothing reveals the character of God more purely than Jesus hanging on the cross, praying over his enemies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what the cross is all about. 
It perfectly reveals the character of God. And what it reveals is a God who delights in pouring himself out, even when it means bearing the consequences and the weight of our own sin. And that, folks, is good news. It's the good news of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus hanging on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. This is the perfect revelation of who God is. And if that's what God is like, and if this is how God feels about you and I, it tells us we have unsurpassable worth in his eyes. Why? Because he paid an unsurpassable price. So the cross shows us this is what God is like, and this is what he's willing to do to reconcile us to himself. That is good news. You don't have to wonder what God is like. You just look at the cross. Now, here's the thing. All of us, to some degree, I don't care how long we've all served God, some of us for a few weeks, months, years, some of us for a few decades, but every single one of us, to some degree, we carry the residue of false deceptive pictures of what God is like. I've told you before how, you know, in my previous church, we had a, a ministry to men with addictions, a residential training center. And, and so I did a lot of one-on-one -on -one work with men in addictions, various kinds of addictions. And, and we'd, we'd, I'd just get to know them, take them to lunch, hear their story, and speak into their lives. And I can't tell you how many men came into our program who were either furious with God or they had no desire to be in relationship with God. Okay? And every single one of those men invariably had a soul wound that dated all the way back to their childhood because they had some type of parental figure in their life, whether it was their dad, whether it was their mom, or someone else who had parental influence that they had a broken relationship with. This person, maybe they were a rageaholic, maybe they were abusive, or maybe this parental figure was totally absentee and uninvolved in their life. And what happened is, without, without knowing it, these Young men would take this relationship that was broken and project it upon God and they would subconsciously believe this must be what God is like. And all of us to some degree, maybe not to that degree, for some of you maybe, but for some of us, maybe it's not quite to that degree, but all of us absorb throughout our lives distorted understandings of what God is like. And I'm telling you, this is the number one way that Satan keeps us in bondage. If, if the enemy can get us to buy into and believe a distorted picture of what God is like, then, then to that degree, we cannot absorb the good news for what it is. Even when we hear it, it just doesn't resonate. It just, something about it feels off to us because it doesn't line up with our, our understanding of what God is like. And to that degree, now we're not going to be able to experience the fullness of life, the fullness of joy, the fullness of love that God so wants to pour out into our lives. And so the first thing that's got to happen is we need the Holy Spirit to break apart all of those deceptive pictures so that we can see God purely revealed as he is on the cross as Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. As I just want to say to you tonight, I, there may be people that need to hear this tonight and so I just want to speak prophetically into your life right now under the authority of Jesus. And I want, you to, I want you to know, God does not hold a grudge against you. God is not out to get you. God is not furious with you. 
In fact, when God sees you, God does not see you primarily in terms of a problem that needs fixing. God sees you in terms of his child who he desperately loves. God has nothing but passionate love towards you. And God's pleasure for you, God's delight in you as his child, dwarfs, by comparison, any pleasure that a loving parent has for their newborn baby. It gave God joy to create you, and it gives God joy right now to hold you into existence this very moment. You understand, if God did not delight in you, you would not be existing right now. So God delights in you. You're his child. God has nothing but passionate love for you, and he desperately wants to share his joy with you. But you see, if we're infected with the lies and the distorted pictures of God, then that just feels off. It just doesn't feel true. We we think to ourselves, that can't be true. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've, I've done. I'm scum. I'm a maggot. Look how I've messed up my life. Look how I've messed up other people's lives. I had an abortion. I had a divorce. I fell back into my alcohol addiction. I fell back into my porn addiction. Or I cheated on my taxes or whatever it is. And we say, surely God must be mad at me. I'm telling you under the authority of Jesus Christ, it's not you God is mad at. God is mad at everything that kills and steals and destroys the real you, the you God created you to be. And for you, God has nothing but passionate love. He rages against sin that steals and kills and destroys the fullness of life that God wants to share with us. He rages against that precisely because he's so passionately in love with you. So understand, the heat of God's wrath against sin is simply the mirror reflection of the heat of God's passionate love towards you. But towards you, you've, everything hangs on this. You have to believe God has nothing but passionate love. It's the anger of a parent when you find out that your teenager was out late last night drinking and driving with their friends. Those of you that have been parents, don't raise your hands, but how many of you know? If I find out that my child was out drinking and driving with their friends at night, there's going to be some rage, Right? Right? All right. I mean, some of you have your kids sitting next to you. Come on. There's going to be some rage there. There's going to be some anger there. But the anger is there because, you know what? You're my precious child. And I love you. You're more valuable to me than my own life. And you are willing to jeopardize your life. By going out and doing dumb things, you could have gotten yourself killed. And so there's going to be some anger there, of course, but it's born out of a passionate love for your child. This is who God is. This is what God is like. I want to tell you in this room, I don't care who you are. I don't care how many times you've blown it. I don't care how many times you've messed up. I don't care how many people you've hurt. I don't know. I don't care who you killed. I don't care what addiction you've got in your life. When you begin to let God, the perfect God, the perfectly loving God on the inside and begin to go to work, And you begin to believe and trust that God truly is as beautiful as he is revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. When you begin to believe that and trust that and begin to allow God onto the inside of your life, that's what's going to bring healing. That's what's going to bring wholeness. And that alone is going to transform you. It's the only thing that can transform you. Fear won't do it. Shame won't do it. 
Fear and shame will only get you to hide your sin, which makes you look better on the outside. But fear and shame can never set you free from your sin. It'll just make you sicker. Because now you're hiding the thing that you got to get set free from. But when you begin to catch a glimpse of the beautiful love of God revealed on Calvary, the love of a God who loves you in the midst of your mess, as you are right now, that's what empowers you to walk out of your mess and to be transformed and to experience the joy of being free. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.